Good morning. You guys doing well? It's an outstanding day, isn't it? <laughs> Good to have you with us. Uh, let me, uh, you see I'm wearing the t-shirt here, dare you to move, I dare you, I dare you. What is that about? It's, it's been interesting since we've moved into our new facility here. We're going on two years here this next month, and we've had a 40% growth since we've been in here, which is pretty amazing. That's pretty, pretty outrageous by God's grace, and uh, if you look at the numbers this year compared to last year, we're up over 100, 100 more folks are in here with us, and so a lot of times people will say, well, so what are we going to do? What are we going to do with what we own here? And we, we have uh, certainly a plan. We talked about it at the beginning of this year, and I just wanted to say that many of you that are participating in that plan, Dare You to Move 2.5. We're raising some funds so that we can build out and utilize the rest of the facilities. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your regular and consistent giving over and above your general giving. And if you would like to participate in that, there's many that don't uh, know about it or are familiar with it, you can go online and on um, our website, you got those scrolling banners on that front page. Hit the one that says 2.5, uh, dare you to move. 2.5. It'll take you to a page in the back that will tell you everything about it. And I would encourage you to maybe listen to some of the messages. There's five messages there. And, uh, but most importantly, listen to the testimonies. They're powerful. They're inspiring just to, to hear those testimonies. So, so do that. And if you want to participate, you can get involved with us. We'd love it. We'd love to have you participate with us. And uh, why are we doing all of this? Because it's about the gospel. We want more and more people to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that's what this series is all about. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to, to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. And the, the gospel is all about freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1, unity of the gospel. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. There is no greater feeling on earth. There's no greater feeling on earth than being free. And nothing will make you free like the gospel. Nothing will make you free like the gospel and nothing will bring unity, harmony, camaraderie in relationships quite like the gospel. Finish this statement if you would for me please. Uh, united we, we stand, divided we, yeah, united we stand, divided we fall, that's true in church, home, work, or play. Yet, Few organizations have fought more often or split more bitterly than the church. Came across uh, some of the stats as it relates to that. In the 20th century, there were more than 100 varieties of Baptist churches alone. We'll pick on Baptists this morning, okay? And Church of God and a few others. But uh, So there were more than 100 varieties of Baptist churches alone. Let me... Uh, give you some of the names, including the Northern Baptist, Southern Baptist, General Baptist, Particular Baptist, Seventh-day Baptist, Hard Shell Baptist, that sounds a little weird, Free Will Baptist, heard that, Duck River and Kindred Association Baptist, and here's, here's really a good one, I can't figure this one out, Two Seed in the Spirit, Predestinarian Baptist, that's a mouthful, and then the group called Church of God, I'm sure you've heard of that. Church of God had a branch break off, calling itself the true Church of God, and then a group split off from that, calling itself the only true Church of God. 
A researcher points out that there are more than 33,000 denominations of Christianity in the world. Many of them born out of anger, hostility, withdrawal between people who claim to follow the teachings of Jesus. This is the same Jesus who prayed to his father that all of his followers might be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. John 17, 23. Heard the story of a man who was rescued from a desert island where he survived alone for 15 years. Before leaving, he gave his uh, rescuers a little tour of the buildings he had constructed as a sort of one-man town over the years. And uh, as he's kind of walking them through, he says, that, that was my house, and then that was the, my store, and this building over here was a kind of cabana, and over here is where I, I go to church. And they asked, well, what's the building next to it? Oh, that's where I used to go to church. So we're going to talk about the unity of the gospel this morning. We need help on this study. We need help on every study. We're going to begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me before we take a look at our text and unpack these notes? God, we absolutely love uh, the dynamic of your presence and the power in our prayer that we experience when we gather together as your beloved children that we can't experience all alone. There's, there's a dynamic to your presence and, and power that we experience together. And so, God, this morning we pray that, that through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that we would not only see, but also experience more than ever before that nothing will change the human heart, heal a wounded soul, turn hatred into love, bring repentance forgiveness, reconciliation, unity, harmony, and peace like the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. So we've worked through the first chapter. Now we're headed into chapter two, starting in verse one. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Notice the contrast between they're spying out our freedom to bring us into slavery. These are legalists. They're moralists. And where did I go here? So that they might bring us into slavery. Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So he's talking about preservation of the gospel. Those are two key, key verses here, verse four, five, and six, and then, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as 
Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, that we're talking, this is Paul speaking, obviously, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, Cephas is Peter, so James, Peter, and John, who seem to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And so you can see how the outline's laid out here. This is what we're looking at. We're gonna unpack these basically three questions. What's the big idea of the text? You need to know kind of what, is, what are they talking about here? And then we're gonna look at the, the uh, what is this freedom that he's talking about, what's the freedom of the gospel, and then we're gonna end by the marks of real unity. What does that look like in our lives? So first of all, what's the big idea? It was a meeting in Jerusalem which had huge consequences for us today. And uh, the first chapter, Paul is defending his apostolic credentials. Now why is that so important? These false teachers were undermining his, his credentials, that he was truly an apostle. You guys, apostle, big A, you know what that means? This dude encountered Jesus, the resurrected Lord and Savior, and was sent by him to the world to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is our epistemological authority as believers? It goes back to the scriptures, because the scriptures were written, the the New Testament predominantly was written by the apostle Paul, who encountered the resurrected Savior and was sent by him to tell us about Jesus. And so that's the authority, that's the foundation of our faith, the credibility of our creed. Really, really important, and they were undermining that. And so he defends it in the first chapter. In the second chapter now, what we see is that his apostolic uh, authority is commended by the other apostles. Because they were saying, oh, Paul's preaching something different from Peter, James, and John. Yeah, they were sent by Jesus, but he's preaching something totally different. So Paul's fear... Why he went is in response to a revelation from God externally, verse 2a, and in response to a fear internally, 2b. Nothing was threatening Paul's certainty about the gospel. He knew the gospel. So it's not threatening his certainty whether or not he knew the gospel or not, but something was threatening the fruitfulness in his ministry. Here's your first fill in the blank on your notes. Number one, so what's the big idea of the text? False teachers were telling these young Christians that Paul was preaching a gospel that was inadequate and not as full, that's your fill in the blank, not as full as the original apostolic gospel preached by the Jerusalem leaders. Nobody could deny that the uh, Jerusalem leaders had encountered the resurrected Savior and they went to their deaths proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they were questioning Paul's authority. Pretty important stuff. Big stuff here. And uh, so Paul is uh, trying to see and, and, and is actually showing us that he has the commendation of these, uh, of these folks. Notice what it says uh, in verse four, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So they insisted that Paul taught an easy beliefism, a cheap grace. Uh, that, was, that was his own very unconventional message. So Paul's trip was not for fear that the Jerusalem apostles didn't have the true gospel or that he didn't have the true gospel, but what he feared was that the Jerusalem apostles might not be true to the gospel, that they might not be uh, true to the gospel, that they might not stand up to the false teachers, 
but rather allow their own cultural prejudices to entice them to let these teachers continue to make such damaging claims. Do we have false teachers in our world today? Yeah, absolutely. You need to be aware of that. You need to know the difference between true uh, gospel doctrine and false gospel doctrine. So he's making a distinction here, as we will see. So the stakes couldn't have been higher. It's really about true church unity. Paul's claim, the gospel of faith in Christ is for people of all cultures. That's what, was, what Paul was claiming. False teacher's claim was this. Not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians must become Jewish. They must take on the culture and uh, begin to go through the ceremonial laws, circumcision, and things like that. That's what they were teaching. And so, if the Jerusalem apostles had sided with or even merely tolerated those who were teaching against Paul, this would have split the church in two right at this moment. That's why it has implications and ramifications even to this very day. And there would have been two opposing parties in Christianity that were hostile to each other. Number two on your notes, the fundamental question was whether we need to add external behaviors to internal belief in Christ in order to be saved. Your fill in the blank is to add. Do we need to add anything to Christ to be saved? That's why Paul said that the freedom we have in Christ, verse four, was under threat and therefore the very truth of the gospel was at stake. Now, now look up here for just a minute. This is, this is really, this is big stuff because it really is foundational to our faith in Jesus Christ and to how, how does a, how's a person saved? How does a person know that they have a relationship with God? How does a person know that they're going to heaven when they die? That's the question, salvation. This is a salvation question. How do you know that you're going to heaven? How do you know that you have a relationship with God? How does he let you in? How does he let you be a part of his family? That's the big question. And oftentimes, you know, I'll have people, as I'm trying to help them to make a confession of faith and give their lives to Jesus, uh, kind of struggle with this. I've heard people say, and uh, not too long ago, that I had someone say, well, I just want to make sure that I have pure motives. And initially, I mean, I used to, I used to, I used to say, well, yeah, that's probably really good to have pure motives, but well, if I said that, then I would, in essence, be saying, so it's Jesus plus pure motives, and that'll save you. Because who, who has pure motives? Nobody does. We all struggle with our motives. You don't wait until your motives are pure. You'll be waiting forever. I mean, you will. So it's not Jesus plus pure motives. I've even heard people say this. So... If I become a Christian, does that mean I have to forgive my ex-wife? And there have been times that I've, you know, I was thinking, well, that's actually probably a really good thing just for the sake of your own poisoning bitterness that's in your heart towards her. But if I said, if I said well, yeah, you have to do that, it would be saying, in essence, so it would be Jesus plus forgiving your ex-wife. But the, but the gospel is not either one of those or any number of things that you would add to Jesus. No, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Oh my goodness. It's Jesus plus nothing. Nothing. Oh, oh, by the way, you can't add anything to it. There's nothing you can add to your salvation that would somehow kind of boost it a little bit and make it a little bit better. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And no wonder Paul felt fear 
The stakes could not have been higher. The verdict here is that they welcomed Paul. Paul took, remember who Paul took? Titus, verse 1. Titus was a Greek, a flesh and blood, uncircumcised, bacon-eating Christian. That's verse 3. So Paul's false brothers who infiltrated our ranks, as he said here, verse 4, would have insisted Titus to be circumcised, live according to the Jewish rituals. Yet, not even, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek, verse 3. And then Paul says in verse 6, they added nothing to my message. They didn't insist on Titus' circumcision. God does, and then he goes on and says, God does not judge by external appearance. God shows no favoritism, no partiality. Here's the third point on your notes. It's all part of background. So number three, externalities are to do with our doing. Internalities have to do with our being. And Christianity is about who I am in Christ, not what I do for him. We're talking salvation here. Certainly you'll do things for him, but that comes after. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So it's who I am in Christ. So verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. And so the Jerusalem apostles agreed that it is faith in Christ alone and not any other performance or ritual that is necessary for salvation. By the way, by the way, you, you know this. If anybody ever asks you, what's the difference between Christianity and all the major cults and religions of our world today? It's right there. It's right there. It's a gift. Everything else has to be earned. Every other religion teaches some form of earning, achievement. Ours is a gift. What do you do with gifts? You either accept it or reject it. That's pretty amazing. That's an amazing truth. And, uh, and so their acceptance of Titus was proof that they accepted Paul's gospel ministry. Only in Christ can we be holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, Colossians 1.22. Jesus fulfilled these Old Testament ceremonial laws that these false teachers were saying that we have to follow. And Jesus had fulfilled all of those, therefore makes us clean, John 13, 2 through 11. He made that clear to his disciples as he was washing their feet. So this idea of justification, you guys know what that, what that means? When it says, and you can write this down on your notes too, I don't think it's on your notes, but it's Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. So, so you're on your deathbed, someone comes along and says, hey, is everything good between you and God? Yes, I have peace with God because I put my faith in Jesus. That's what it's saying here. You don't want to wait until then to know that you're right with God. But therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to the folks next to you and see if they know what the definition of justified means. That's a pretty, pretty important word, you know, in the Bible. Real quick, do that. What does it mean to be justified? How many were thinking like this? You've heard us use this before, just as if, just as if I never sin. How about this one, just as if you lived a perfect life. So check this out. So when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there's an immediate status change, boom, right then. And you move from being an enemy of God and an object of his wrath to his beloved sons and daughters. 
and that can never be taken back. Is that so cool? It, that, that is amazing. That's an amazing truth. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. I have peace with God. And that's, that's so important. So God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to the salvation offered as a free gift. See, see, the more you begin to understand that, the more that begins to transform your heart. If your heart isn't being transformed much, you need to begin to believe and understand that more and more and let that go deep within your heart. Now, I, I need to kind of walk through this a little bit because they were accusing Paul of cheap grace and easy beliefism, which is prevalent in American Christianity. It's very, very, very common. You can turn on the TV and listen to some guys out there that, that spout cheap grace and an easy beliefism. So what, what is that? Kind of need to know the difference. The gospel has two parts. It has the part that says you're a sinner. That's not something that people like to, you know, here in America today, you called me a sinner? I, and, but the Bible is very clear about that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, so we're all sinners. So the Bible calls us sinners. So the gospel has two parts. It has the part that says you're a sinner and it has the part that says you're loved and accepted. So, so if we think that we're not all that bad, the idea of grace will never astonish us or, or change us. See, change comes by seeing a need, a need for a savior and then getting one. Let me ask this question. Uh, anybody here without, without sin? Without sin? No, no. So, so we all fit into that category that we're, we are desperate. In fact, do you think that you can add anything to your salvation, that somehow you can build the bridge across the chasm that separates you from God? Is there anything that you can add to that to, to build that bridge to give you peace with God? No, no, no. So you're pretty desperate, aren't you? Because you're going to perish, and that's where you're headed for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not what? Perish. You're going to perish apart from him. You're going to perish. Do you see your dire condition apart from Jesus? So to the degree you see your dire condition apart from Jesus, plus the magnitude of his provision stirs up within you unspeakable and glorious joy. Does that make sense? See, so, so, so let me go back to what I said before. If we think that we are not all that bad, the idea of grace will never change us or never astonish us. See, if you're not very astonished by grace, so there should be times in your life where you're just like overwhelmed. I can't believe I have what I have. I have him in my life. And it's not based on my record. My record, oh, my record's messed up. But his record's perfect. He gave me his record. He took my record. And I... I'm complete. I'm pure before God. It's called justification. Now, the sanctification is another thing, and that's part of that process is that he works on us the rest of our lives. But I'm going to be sanctified to the degree that I'm living in the reality of the fact that I'm justified. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. So the law is diagnostic. So when we study God's word, by the way, if you don't think you're, you're, much, you're much of a sinner, you haven't been reading the Bible much lately because when I read the Bible, I go, oh my goodness, I'm not even coming close. I'm a mess. Exactly. It's diagnostic. The cure is Jesus. The cure is Jesus. So the, the, the scripture is kind of this, when we see the law, it's diagnostic and then the cure is Jesus. So here's, let me explain this. So in this gospel message, there's both love and truth. Every relationship, there's this mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. 
you have a healthy relationship, you're gonna have this back and forth. And so love without truth is sentimentality. It accepts and affirms but, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is, is too harsh. It's harshness. It gives us information in such a way that we can't receive it. So this is how I would put it. I'm getting to that cheap grace kind of thing here. But truth without love is, is surgery without anesthesia, okay? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So truth without love is surgery without anesthesia. When you see somebody recoil and be defensive towards you, you're trying to give them surgery without anesthesia. You need to bring on the love. They're not feeling secure about your love, so you've got to continue to reinforce that so that they'll respond a little better about that. But here's more of the cheap grace. It's, it's love without truth is anesthesia without surgery. See, that's cheap grace. So, so the... So the false teachers were teaching you need to obey to be accepted by God. That's called legalism. And then there's the antinomianism is that, no, God accepts everybody. It doesn't matter whether you obey or not. That's called antinomianism. That's not true. But what Paul was teaching was actually the gospel. The gospel says, no, we're accepted. Therefore, we will obey. We will want to follow. And we're not going to do it perfectly, but he's continuing to work in our life. But, the, but it'll be that, that kind of response. And so the outcome is freedom. Paul, biblical gospel, gives freedom. Verse 4, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. The opponents earn your salvation message leads to slavery. So how does the gospel give us freedom? This is really important you understand. There's three ways it gives us freedom, probably many more, but I'm just going to give you three this morning. The first one is spiritual freedom. So it's going to give us spiritual, psychological, and then cultural freedom. The first one is spiritual freedom. So think about this just for a minute. So the legalist, the moralist, we're teaching works righteousness. Every belief system in the world except for Christianity teaches a works righteousness. You guys know what works righteousness is? So, so I've got to do these things. I've got to hit the punch list, and then God will accept me. See, that's works righteousness. Now think about that. If that's how we became Christians, you know what that's going to produce within us? Pride and or fear. Pride, when I'm hitting the punch list, I'm going to look down on you because you're not. You're not hitting the punch list. That's, that's the making of an elder brother. Remember the elder brother in the, in the Luke 15 story? He looked down on his younger brother for going out and spending all the wealth. He's pretty ticked off. But that's just producing of an elder brother because I'm, you're holier than thou and self-righteous because you, hey, look what you've done. Or it creates fear because you never know if you've ever done enough. And it also creates fear when bad things happen. You start thinking, hey, I, I must have done something bad here to deserve this. God's, God's coming after me. Almost kind of this double jeopardy kind of thing that because you're not living in the reality of the fact that he paid it all. So there's no way that he would ever hold you accountable for your sins in that, in that regard uh, because if Jesus paid for all of our sins, he paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Does that make sense? So he's not gonna ask for payment from you. It's already been paid for. So it creates this, this craziness. It creates this entitlement too, and I've seen people do this. Hey, I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, I did all these things, and this is what's happening in my life? God, I can't believe you're doing this. What? That's works righteousness. That's a works righteousness mindset. So it creates pride or fear, entitlement, tons of baggage. 
That's not the gospel. The gospel is a, is a grace righteousness. It creates a humble confidence. So you live in the reality of the fact that I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. There was no other way. It was uh, indispensable. But it was amazingly costly. He loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. I've never been more loved. I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. That's the gospel. So it creates this humble so it eliminates superiority, humble confidence. It eliminates inferiority. Why, why should I ever feel bad about myself? He died for me. He loves me. He rescued me. I didn't earn it on my own, so therefore I can't cop an attitude of superiority. Do you, do you hear the healthiness of that? Do you hear the balance of that? So there's this humble confidence. So salvation is, is something that I, is something that I, Salvation is not something that I achieve or, or uh, it is, let me see if I'm reading this right. Salvation is not something that I achieve but receive. Yes, that's, that's right, isn't it? <laughs> I start rattling off sometimes and I, I have to think about what I'm saying. Did I say that right? Sometimes I'll say it wrong. So salvation is not something that I achieve but receive. It's not something that I earn but I embrace by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not it's not that the good are in and the bad are out. Every other major religion and cult is the good are in, the bad are out. You hit the punch list, you're in. If you don't, you're out. But in, but in grace righteousness, who are in? Who, who are Christians? It's the humble are in and the proud are out. The humble are in, the proud are out. All you need is what? All, all you need is need. All you need is say, man, I can't do it. There's nothing in me that can earn a right standing, but it's been given to me freely by his grace. That in, in itself would be enough to take you the rest of your life to face anything. That in itself, if you really understood that and lived in the reality of it. That's, that's the gospel of grace. And it's sufficient. Hey, what are you facing? What are you struggling with? What are you up against? Do you feel like the odds are against you? His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. It's beyond that. The sin that you've committed or the sins that have been committed against you are no match for God's grace. Listen to me. They're no match. He rescues us. He's a savior. He loves us. He adores us. He pursues us. That's the gospel message. That's so important for us to understand. Our reconciliation to God is permanent and eternal because Christ accomplished it for us. There's no possibility it can ever be undone because it's by grace. If I can't earn it, then I can't unearn it. Do you hear me? You can't unearn it. Yeah, but you, you have no idea what I did. It doesn't it doesn't matter, it does matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter in light of the grace of God and what you have in him. Probably the reason why you're pursuing those things is you don't understand what you have in him. You need to come to terms with that more and more. The gospel needs to be driven deeper into your heart and understand, and that's what brings the sanctification, the practical holiness. You have positional holiness before God. Now you need to have the practical holiness. And so... 
We obey not in the fear and insecurity of hoping to earn our salvation, but in the freedom and security of knowing we are already saved in Christ. So this is what's interesting, is that both the false teachers and Paul told Christians to obey the Ten Commandments, but for totally different reasons and motives. And unless your motive for obeying God's law is the grace, gratitude motive of the gospel, you are in slavery. If you're trying to live by the Ten Commandments so that you can earn right standing with God, you're in slavery. Brings us slavery. That's why I love what John Newton, and uh, he wrote Amazing Grace, but he wrote another hymn that puts it perfectly. Listen to this portion of the hymn. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty are joined to part no more. What is his beauty? Here's the beauty. It's the second line. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice. So he, he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and then he pardons us. That's what it's saying. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. I want to honor him. When I understand what he's done for me, oh my goodness, I don't do it like I, I should. And I fall down, but I get back up and I keep running back into his arms because of his amazing love for me as he continues to transform my life from the inside out. So the gospel, God accepts me, therefore I obey. His commands are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3. His law is my delight that I meditate on day and night. So, it's, so initially it's diagnostic and it drives me into the arms of him and now that I'm in his arms, they're not burdensome because he empowers me with his presence. So the grace of God is God's empowering presence, enabling me to be what he wants me to be, to do what he wants me to do. I'm in total dependence upon him. I'm trusting in him and I'm walking with him and I have a relationship with God. I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate me from God. I mean, it just, it's, it's amazing. Nothing can separate me from his love for me. He will never, ever, 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 ever leave me or forsake me. And uh, so the law becomes honey on my lips, Psalm 119, 103. So the law reflects the nature of God, reveals what is pleasing to God, but I don't have the law to, to have salvation with God. It's after I have salvation through Jesus Christ, then it becomes the standard that I want to live by to show my honor and love for God. Comprende? Make sense? Okay, so th this next one uh, is, is probably one of my favorite. I like that. That's, okay, that first one was my favorite. <laughs> but this one is like my second favorite because I wish I would have learned this second one, this psychological freedom years ago because I wrecked havoc on my marriage and on my personal life because I didn't understand this, the psychological freedom of the gospel. So anything you add to Christ as a requirement for your happiness will enslave you. Psalm 16, 4, the, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. So when you love, trust, or put your hope in anything more than God, or in addition to God, you set yourself up for increased sorrow. Now, here's what's crazy about this, and I, I never really understood this because I was doing this even as a pastor for many years. You can be a real Christian and understand the gospel and still functionally be psychologically in bondage. So in your head, you can say, I'm accepted by God because Jesus Christ plus nothing. 
I'm, in your head, you're saying that, but in your heart, you are adding, you're adding money or achievement or some accomplishment or the happiness of your children or the acceptance of a peer group or the approval of your parents or any number of things. You're adding it to Christ. Yes, I'm accepted by God through Jesus Christ, but you're adding these things to your life. So it's anything you add to Christ as a requirement for your happiness. They will enslave you. And uh, so how do you know that something other than God is ruling your heart? You need to know this. You need to know this. So turn to the folks next to you and see if they can give you the answer to that. How do you know something other than God is ruling your heart? How would you know that? Real quick, do that. Okay, so were you guys, uh, I've taught this for many years, and I'm going to keep teaching it until everybody here learns it, until I, I learn it even better than what I've learned it, but uh, here's some of the things you need to keep in mind. We're talking about idolatry. Did you guys, is that, is that what, uh, how you see this? So we're talking about idolatry. I, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is anything created to point you to God that replaces God in the dominant thoughts and deepest desires of your heart. So the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing, when nothing else is demanding your attention. So what do you think about in your solitude? I have no solitude. Well, that's a problem then, isn't it? Because of all the electronic devices and all that, there was a time when we would sit in a, you know, in a waiting room waiting you know, to go to the doctor and we would be fiddling around with all these things and we'd have a time of solitude or laying in bed at night you know, or whatever it is. What, is it, what comes to your mind? Now think about this. If God, if God is the God that the Bible tells us he is, then what should dominate our solitude is him because there's nothing more satisfying than knowing him and walking with him and interacting with him. But... Oftentimes, that's not what dominates our solitude. There's many, many other things that dominate our solitude, and that will tell you what's ultimately controlling your life and controlling your heart. For me, you've heard me say this many times before, at night while I'm laying in bed, I'm thinking about all the things I didn't do that day and what I need to do the next day. So it tells me I'm a perfectionist, workaholic. I've got you know, all these lists. I feel better about myself when I've worked through the list. And, and so that's what it's telling me. Here's another way. Maybe you were saying this. How about inordinate emotions? Anybody say that? See, that's why I gotta keep teaching this. I mean, I seriously do because it's inordinate emotions. So this is how it works. You gotta track with me here on this. You gotta really understand this. So I look at my inordinate emotions. I had some this last week. I had some envy and the Lord was telling me very clearly that when I have envy, it disdains and, and, and demeans my uniqueness in the God who created me. And that was like a zinger for me. It's like, oh, gee. And so when you have envy or anxiety or excessive uh, anger or excessive sadness, setting aside the physiological issues that can contribute to that, here's what's happening in our life as it relates to idolatry. If a good thing is threatened, let's just say a good thing would be your bank account, finances, stock market. Oh my goodness, if you're watching that here of late, it's been pretty volatile. 
And so if your sense of identity and well-being is tied to your finances or stock market and there's a number of things that have happened in your life, your bank account is depleted, and that's a good thing, and it's being threatened, and you'll certainly worry over that, and, and there's a certain amount of, uh, amount of that that's okay. So if a good thing is threatened, you'll worry. But if it's an ultimate thing, it's gone from good to an ultimate thing in your life, you're not just going to be worried, but you're going to be paralyzed and fall apart. You're going to have inconsolable worry. You hear what I'm saying? Because you have overly attached your heart to that, whatever it might be. How about this one? Here's the next one. If a good thing is blocked... It was that job promotion. Remember the job promotion you really wanted and you thought if you could get that extra money, you could maybe send your kids to that special school or whatever it might be, and you didn't get it, and the boss promoted his son-in-law, who had only been there half the time that you'd been there, and he got the promotion? I am so ticked off. And that's okay to be angry. If it's a good thing, you're gonna be angry. You gotta work through it and get beyond that. If a good thing is blocked, you'll be mad, but if it's an ultimate thing, you'll be bitter and rage. You see the emotions pegging out as a result of that? Now, if you can learn this, you're gonna really be able to identify a lot of stuff that goes on within our hearts. Here's the next one. If a good thing is lost, you'll be sad, you're stood up at the marriage altar, or you've gone through a divorce. You, you should be sad. It's gonna take a while to get through that. You're gonna grieve that loss. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, in other words, you can't live without it, you're not just going to be sad, you're going to be depressed, and you might even be suicidal. Listen to me. The gospel sets us free because Jesus is our treasure. Jesus becomes our treasure. We were talking about it this last week. And uh, so, so if you add anything to Jesus as a requirement for being happy, it will become your slave master and it will control you when you seek it. It will disappoint you when you get it. It will devastate you if you lose it. And so as we were talking in our, our men's Bible study group that meets on Thursday mornings, we were talking a little bit about that. So how do you, how do you talk yourself off of the ledge? You know what I'm saying? You guys, we've all, anybody ever been out on the ledge? Not you know, this is, we're talking figuratively here, okay, folks? Uh, if you've been out on the ledge, literally, you, you, we need to help you. We'll pray for you right here at the end of the service. But, but, but we've all been out on the ledge emotionally with anxiety, anger, depression. How do you talk yourself off of the ledge? This is how you do it. You've got to begin to rejoice in who you are in Christ and what he has done until your heart is satisfied and rested, releasing your grip on anything you think you can't live without. You begin to release your grip on those things that have a hold of your heart. And by the way, you don't start, you don't start and, you know, you don't wait until something's already got a hold of your heart. You start now because you realize none of this stuff in creation can satisfy me like you. You start by coming to church regularly and worshiping God, studying God's word, meditating on his word. I was meditating on this verse. This is a wonderful verse, the, the, one of the many that helped me with that, Psalm 9014. David says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. Okay, so now we need to move to cultural freedom. I need to rock and roll here. 
Here we go. We need to move. So we've got spiritual freedom, we've got psychological freedom, and then we've got cultural freedom. It means accepting anyone and everyone who is in Christ Jesus, verse 4, regardless of their cultural or ethnic background. Galatians 3.28, we're going to read that, uh, study that here in a few weeks. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all in Christ Jesus. And this is what I have found with more uh, moralistic or legalistic churches is that if we're not transformed from the inside out, we will be tempted to find some sort of external methods, boundary markers to satisfy our need to feel that we are different from those outside the faith. In, in, and you see this in these different religious groups in their dress, their style, their music, their language. So moralistic, legalistic religions tend to press its members to adopt very specific rules and regulations for dress, daily behavior. The, the Muslims do that. The, uh, Islam is, is very cultural. You have to fit with, you have to be part of their culture. Uh, the same thing with Mormons. Very cultural. A lot of these groups will have a specific place where you have to worship. Where can we worship? Anywhere. Anywhere. We're the temple of, of God. They don't, we don't have a specific place of worship. That's why we can have church in a, in a warehouse-looking place. Because <laughs> it's not about the place. It's about the people. And it's, there's no dress code either, is there? No. no, there's no dress code. They don't dress a certain way, which is interesting. Islam, the women wear the, the head coverings, the hijab, and they have Mecca, Mormons. If, you, if you've ever gone into a Mormon temple or place, I had a guy come up to me last night and told me a little bit about inside a Mormon temple. The Hindus. Now here's what's interesting is that what, what happens within Christianity when we become legalistic, we tend to confuse the form with the function. The function is what's sacred. It's not the form that it takes. The form uh, has to do more with the culture that you're in. For instance, the functions of the church are timeless such as the statement of faith, the structure, the strategy, but the, the style or the forms it takes are adaptable from culture to culture. In the same way, a house anywhere in the world functions to shelter inhabitants from the weather, but the form of a house varies from igloo to grass hut to mansion. Now, this is what I've had people uh, say to me here at Desert Breeze. Because, I mean, we're very unique in our culture, and... Um, when we were over at the old nightclub, I had some people say that to me there, and then they left the church as a result of it. And then when we were out at Sandra Day O'Connor High School, I haven't had anybody yet say this to me. And uh, this is what I've heard people say. They've come up to me and says, man, we love the church, but we just can't get over the fact that you wear shorts. <laughs> and, and people have left the church over that. And I'm like, what? What did you just say? I wear shorts. I mean, I could understand that if I was immodest and was wearing a Speedo up here. I mean, I, I could understand why you would leave. My wife would leave. My wife would leave the church, and I would probably clear out the church. There's no doubt about it. That's, that's totally, that's despicable, and I don't even want to think about it right now. I mean, I could understand that if there was some form of immodesty. But what? You said what? I mean, and I can understand... But see, that's more style. That's, see, what happens when people say that is that they make, they're making the, the form sacred. It's, listen, it's not the form. What's the function? It should have been more like, hey, you guys don't preach the gospel here. Or what kind of a structure do you have? What's the church government? Or, or are you guys really reaching lost people here? Are you helping? Are you really making this up? See, that would be the questions you want to think about. Not style. 
Not style, not form. It's the function of the church. Now, now since we've been here, I had someone at our newcomers party say this. This is what they said. It says, when are you going to make your new building look more like a church? I'm not, I'm not even sure what a church looks like. So tell me, what does a church look like? I mean, you and I, we're the church. That's what, that's what the church looks like. It's you and I. So it's kind of really crazy that someone would even say that. So what is that supposed to look like? I kind of like the way it looks. It's like a little, it's like a coffee shop. <laughs> I love coffee. Whoa. Let's go hang out with our friends. Where are you going? Coffee shop church? Yeah. We're just going to hang out. Yeah, but see, that's, there's cultural freedom. There's cultural freedom. So, so what is the dress, style, music, language of Christians? It's multicultural. It's multicultural. And it's going to vary from culture to culture, but most importantly, it will be people who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as their self. And it will be people who make it easy for others to believe in God. Because, because here's the marks of unity. Let me, let me knock these out here real quick. The marks of unity. First, by the way, these marks of unity can apply also to marriage, home, work, and play. So in the essentials, in the essential Christian beliefs, we have unity. We have unity. So you need to know those things that we're not gonna, we're not gonna battle over. These are the essential Christian doctrine. You need to have that within your own marriage too. My wife and I have the kind of essentials of our belief. One is we'll never use the big D word. You guys know what I'm talking? Yeah, that's, that's, a non, that's a, an essential belief within our home. We're never talking divorce. We're never talking. Oh, another, another essential, we will always treat each other with love and respect, regardless of whether we're, we're battling over children or, you know, color of carpet. That's what's crazy because I've seen churches split over color of carpet. It's like, what? You've got to be kidding. I've seen people split over in their marriage relationship over the most trivial things. So these are the things that are non-negotiable. This is not unity apart from truth, but around the truth. I gave you an easy way. I gave you an acronym there to understand what the Christian doctrine is. Do you see it there on your nose? You've got deity of Christ. So I'm using the word doctrine as an acronym. D is for deity of Christ. O, original sin. C, canon of scripture. T, trinity. R, resurrection, I, incarnation, N, newness of life, E, eschatology. And so that's what you're looking for, statement of faith. That's the statement of faith. These are the things we, we won't divide over. You know, we're, uh, we will divide over. If you don't believe in the Trinity, th this will bring a division. In fact, there was a guy that came to our church a number of years ago. He wanted to teach a small group, but he denied the deity. Well, you can't do that here. Because that's, that's something that's, uh, uh, that's non-negotiable. You guys understand? Comprende? You, you, that's, that's really, really important. And, uh, and we want to be a church, and we want to embrace those churches that preach the gospel. They don't preach the gospel as it's good news about something that we must do to make ourselves right with God, but it's, or, or good advice of what we must do to be right with God, but it's good news about what God has done to make us right with him. And they, we need to preach the gospel. We need to hear the gospel proclaimed. So this, this means accepting anyone and everyone who is in Christ Jesus, verse four, regardless of their cultural or ethnic background. This is not uniformity, this is unity. Uniformity is where, where you cookie cut people. So there's gonna be diversity within the unity. That's all important. So just as Titus was not compelled to be circumcised, verse three, so today we must not insist on additions to the gospel belief. 
Oh, by the way, did I tell you that if you've been baptized in any other church except Desert Breeze, that you're not actually baptized? <laughs> hey, don't laugh. That's, that's a serious matter. So you guys keep laughing because you know that's, that I'm, I'm pulling your chain. Oh, you got baptized at another church here in the valley? Doesn't count here. Okay. And, and uh, how about membership? You're not a member of this church? You're not going to heaven. There's membership cards out in the foyer as you exit. Make sure you fill that out before you go home because no telling what might happen on the way home. So I'm talking about non-essentials here. I'm talking about things such as speaking in tongues or abstaining from alcohol or Arminianism versus Calvinism or pre-post or all millennialism. What? Yeah, all those things. So here, number two, in non-essential beliefs, there is liberty. By the way, you need to know the difference. So if you come to me and you're saying, hey, we're really battling in our small group, I'll say, so what is it? Is it essential or non-essential doctrine? That'll be the first thing I'll ask you. And so you need to know the difference. In non-essential beliefs, there is liberty. It means recognizing that we have different callings. Notice in verse 7, Paul was called to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. So we can adapt the gospel to different people groups while preserving its essence. There's all kinds of churches for all kinds of people, just like restaurants here in the valley. I mean, look at the assortment of Mexican food restaurants. Anybody like Mexican food? Woohoo! Man, there's all kinds of different kinds and styles and flavors, and that's just Mexican food. It's all good, baby. I love Mexican food. Good stuff. And so, that's that. Here's the last one, but most importantly, but in all our beliefs, we show love. Perhaps surprisingly, Christian unity means we should continue to remember the poor. That's what he says in verse 10. So remember the whole point of Paul's trip to Jerusalem arose because some false brothers had infiltrated the church, verse four. four. So Paul was given the right hand of fellowship, verse nine. By including Paul, the Jerusalem leaders were were discrediting the false teachers. So they're, they're drawing a line, there's no doubt about it. But churches must not maintain unity at the expense of the gospel. So John 13, 34 through 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your what? By our love, by our love. The gospel is the best news that anyone could ever hope to hear. It is all about a God who is more forgiving and loving than we could ever dream or imagine. That's what they need to hear from us more than anything. It's about the amazing love of God. And by the way, we start where people are, not where we want them to be. Does that make sense? So this is what we need to do. We need to love non-Christians more than their non-Christian friends love them. And we need to love them more than they love their sin. And only then we can begin to point to the greater love that God has for them. Let me end with a story here just to kind of wrap all this up. And this is uh, by Robert Fulgram who was officiating at a wedding. And, and, and let me just say that it, it should be no surprise that God's strategy for evangelism is a beautiful bride. Who's the bride? We are, the church, yeah. But the bride, the true church, is anything but beautiful at times. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we're kind of a mess. Listen to the story. Oh, the bride. She had been dressed for hours, if not days. No adrenaline was left in her body. Left alone with her father in the reception hall of the church while the march of the maidens went on and on. She had walked along the tables laden with gourmet goodies and absentmindedly sampled first the little pink and yellow green mints. And then she picked 
through the silver bowls of mixed nuts and eight pecans, followed by a cheese ball or two, some black olives, a handful of glazed almonds, a little sausage with a freely toothpick stuck in it, a couple of shrimps blanketed in bacon, and a, and a cracker piled with liver, liver pâté. To wash this down, a glass of pink champagne, her father gave it to her to calm her nerves. What you noticed as the bride stood in the doorway was not her dress, but her face. White. For what was coming down the aisle was a, light, a living grenade with the pin pulled out. The bride threw up. Just as she walked by her mother, <laughs> by threw up, I don't mean a polite little ladylike erp into her handkerchief, she puked. <laughs> There's just no nice word for it. I mean, she hosed the front of the chancel, <laughs> hitting two bridesmaids, the groom, a ring bearer, and me the guy officiating. Only two people were seen smiling. One was the mother of the groom, and the other was the father of the bride. Fogum explains how they pulled themselves together for a much quieter, gentler ceremony in the reception hall and how everybody cried as people are supposed to do at weddings, mostly because the groom held the bride in his arms through through the whole ceremony, though through the whole ceremony, and no groom ever kissed a bride more tenderly than he. <laughs> but the best part of the story is that ten years later, everybody was invited back for another party to celebrate this disaster. They watched the whole thing on three TV sets. <laughs> The mother of the bride had had three video cameras going at once during the wedding, and this party was thrown by the mother of the bride herself. How could all of these people rejoice when everything had gone wrong? Because in spite of all the mess, the bride still got the groom. And at the end of the day, that was all that mattered. The bride got the groom. And at the end of time, in spite of our mess, we, the bride of Christ, the true church, will still get the groom. As it says in, praise God. Look at the promise that comes right near the very end of the Bible. It says, Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Heaven's groom gets the bride. The joy that is in store for God's people is so great that the only image that can do it justice is the joy between a lover and his beloved. Then we will see, then we will see the wedding of which the greatest weddings on this earth have only been a dim foreshadowing. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for your truth, it brings freedom to our lives. Continue to do your work in our lives as the bride of your son. Let us experience more and more of the spiritual, psychological, and cultural freedom that is ours through the good news of what our Savior Jesus has done for us. And in the essentials, may we have unity, in the non-essentials, liberty. 
But in all things, may we show your indispensable and costly love for your glory and our indescribable and indestructible joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.